Good morning. Great to see everybody this morning. I want to welcome any visitors who might be here today. Welcome to our church. It's good to have you here. We do have packets of information we'd like to give you, but we need to know where you're sitting. So our greeters are poised, waiting for you simply to raise your hand if you're here for the first time or if you have not yet received uh, the packet. Welcome to our church. I want to remind you that uh, we have uh, this service is telecast down in the ballroom, B-A-W-L room. Uh, if you have children, uh, babies uh, especially, we want you to go down there. That's uh, where you'll be most comfortable and everyone else will be blessed as well so that we can pay careful attention to the, to the word of God. Um, okay, somebody's car is running. A white Buick Regal. Your car is running. Okay, let's all stand and uh, let's all see who's going to stand and uh, go and get their car. <laughs> all right. Um, today is uh, the 67th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Do we have any Second World War veterans here? If you are a Second World War veteran, would you stand up, please, so we can recognize you? Here we go, right back there. <laughs> Over here. If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. I anticipate that as I come through this series uh, called Ave Maria, and you'll find out why in just a moment, that uh, both sides of the question of Mariology are going to be a little upset with me. On the one hand, I think there are some things that Roman Catholics teach about Mary that are simply not biblical, and so some of those folks will be upset with me. And on the other hand, evangelical Protestants, whom I believe have wrongly, maybe in reaction to Roman Catholic theology, have downplayed and have assigned to her a, what I believe is an unscriptural role uh, as well. So as we come through this series, it is going to be mind-stretching. Uh, I cannot tell you uh, how many hours and hours and hours I have labored over what to include in this series because there is so much material. 90% of what I prepared ended up on the floor. And so we have to focus our energies and focus our attention on this message because it's not going to be your typical message and it's not going to be one in which you can just lazily participate. Hopefully you will take notes. We'll have these notes online for you as well. And as we come through really four parts, maybe even five in this series on Mary, I know God is going to bless and encourage you. There is a brevity of information in the New Testament about Mary. Luke, and in his gospel, and also the book of Acts, he wrote both of those. Luke was a historian, and he has the most detailed birth narrative of all of the gospel writers. And that has even caused some scholars to conclude that the eyewitness of Jesus' birth that he speaks of is none other than Mary herself. These early chapters of Luke, in the early uh, birth narratives, as we call them, may very well be 
Mary's diary. They may very well be Mary's memoirs. We need to have a balance between Catholic and Protestant views, and that balance is very hard to find on the person of Mary. I want to introduce you to what uh, I'm going to call the doctrine of amplification. The doctrine of amplification very simply says this, that we move from one scripture to a full-blown dogma or full-blown teaching. Uh, the, the one scripture may be even proof text that is taken out of its context. And from one scripture to a full-blown dogma, uh, we see doctrines emerging that have no foundation in scripture whatsoever. For the Roman Catholic Church, there are three ingredients that constitute what they call truth. If you want to know what the truth is, you must balance these three in their context. On the one hand, Roman Catholic theology teaches that the scriptures are the word of God. They believe that the scriptures constitute part of that truth. There are three integrated parts, though. When they add tradition, that is what historically the church has said or taught on the matter, and reason, what they believe is reasonable. So when you talk about scripture, tradition, and reason, you're melting those together to equal truth as far as Roman Catholic theology is concerned. For those of us who are evangelicals, tradition, that is historically what the church has taught, and reasonable, that is what, reason, that is what is reasonable, must be informed by scripture or validated by the truth of scripture since there is only one truth and that is the written revealed word of the living God. So where tradition or reason does not stack up to the truth of scripture, we reject that tradition and we reject what man says might be reasonable. And it is out of this doctrine of amplification that tradition informed by scripture, which was reasonable to popes, became the basis for what we call today Mariology, or the study of Mary. Not as in the development of, in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, where the issue before the Council of Nicaea was the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, where the scholars then had to look at all of the scriptures that taught uh, character qualities and attributes of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Those divines, those theologians then convened and realized that we are talking about one God who reveals himself in three persons. Now when you come up with the doctrine of the Trinity, as the council at Nicaea did, you are using scripture as your foundation. You're not looking at what tradition taught. You're not looking at what reason taught. In fact, the Trinity is as unreasonable as you can get. But you're looking purely at what the scriptures teach. And so emerging out of the scriptures comes the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, we have division in Christendom today over a few words of scripture that have been shaped by tradition and reason. For example... When Jesus, the night before he was crucified, gathered his disciples together for what we call the Last Supper, 
He instituted the words that we celebrate every time we take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper when he said, this is my body. And from that came all sorts of views as to what he meant when he said, this is my body. It led the Fourth Lateran Council uh, in the year 1215 to finalize the doctrine of the Eucharist or the doctrine of transubstantiation. You see, as evangelical Protestants, we do not believe when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are doing anything more than a sign and a seal of what Christ has done on the cross. In contrast to Lutherans, for example, who believe in the doctrine of consubstantiation, which talks about the, uh, a real presence in, in some sort of uh, mystical form in the sacrament versus the Roman Catholic Church that teaches the doctrine of transubstantiation, meaning very simply that those actual elements, that actual wafer and that actual wine becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. And you see, from those simple words, this is my body which is given for you, the church has now taken off in three separate directions. That is the doctrine of amplification. That is taking just a few words, mixing them in with tradition and reason, and coming up with a doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church has done exactly the same thing when Jesus turned to Peter after his profession of faith, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then turned to Peter and said, Yes, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. From that one sentence, from that one line that has absolutely no uh, uh, foundation anywhere else in the scripture, from that has emerged the whole idea of the papacy. Pope uh, ben uh, Boniface VIII, um, in the year 1302, wrote a bull, uh, that's what they call uh, certain dogmatic statements called Unum Sanctum. And he wrote this in 1302 and he said this, it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Now from thou art Peter to your salvation depends on su uh, being subject to the Roman Pope, we have the doctrine of amplification. But nowhere is the doctrine of amplification more noticeable or more evident than in the development of what we call Mariology. Only Luke and Matthew record anything about the birth of Jesus. The rest of the New Testament is silent. There is nothing else except those two accounts. Now there are some uh, re uh, references that you might be able to take as uh, uh, secondary references to the birth of Christ. But, for example, when you look at John's gospel, where does he start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the word was with God. The word was God. In the beginning, he takes us all the way back to there. That's his starting point in telling the story of Jesus. There is nothing else in John's gospel. There is nothing in Mark's gospel that speak even remotely of the birth of Jesus. With this scant information, 
with this just a few paragraphs, a few, maybe two or three chapters of material on Mary, out of that has emerged one of the most divisive theologies in Christendom in our 2,000-plus year history. It has divided Romans, Roman Catholics and Evangelical Protestants for generations, and it will continue to do so. Out of that birth narrative, out of those few words has emerged in the doctrine of amplification all sorts of things about Mary that have no scriptural basis. Now, as evangelical Protestants, one of the things that we do is we react to that. We look at that and we say, well, that's what they teach, so we're going to take the, the, our Mariology to the other extreme. And we're simply going to say of her that all she was was the earthly mother, the one who provided the womb, if you will, for Jesus. And I believe in doing so, we miss a lot of the truth of Scripture. Mary went from Miriam, that's what her name really is, Miriam of Nazareth, to the mother of God, Theotokos. Mary to the mother of God. The words Ave Maria simply mean Hail Mary. In the King James Version of the Bible, or the Latin Vulgate Version of the Bible, that's how the angel greeted her. Hail Mary, Ave Maria. Luke 1 verse 26 says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Verse 27, To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored the Lord is with you. Those words, highly favored. Martin uh, Luther interpreted them to mean elected or predestined. That is chosen before the foundation of the earth. Catholics look at Ave Maria, full of grace, and from that have emerged all kinds of doctrines and dogmas about what highly favored means. In all of Bach's cantatas, when he refers to Mary, he refers to her as the virgin, the elect virgin. So election seems to be what is meant by the words highly favored, chosen, predestined, elected before the foundation of the earth. Now, the problem with that is that the Second Vatican Council in the year 1964, that's not that long ago, came up with this dogma out of those verses, out of those words, highly favored. They have interpreted that Mary is the one through whom the plan of God for the salvation of the world was set in motion. And I'm quoting directly from the Second Vatican Council. The prayer called the Hail Mary in Roman Catholic teaching is second only to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, its familiarity to Roman Catholics is uh, something that is commonplace. It's something that every Roman Catholic knows. That prayer that is two actual verses of Scripture put together comes like this. The first half of the prayer, which says, Hail Mary, or Ave Maria, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, 
and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. That's the first half of the prayer called the Hail Mary. Now, that first half of that prayer is made up of Luke chapter 1 and verse 42 and the passage that we just read. In Luke 1, 42, uh, <clears throat> Mary is before Elizabeth. She is greeting Elizabeth. That whole scene where Mary and Elizabeth come together, where the great prayer called the Magnificat, uh, Mary sang in fashion like unto Hannah in the Old Testament. When she came and visited Elizabeth, Elizabeth said in Luke 1.42, in a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. So from the greeting of the angel and the greeting of Elizabeth, we have the first half of that prayer called the Hail Mary that Catholics insist that their people pray. I have no problem whatsoever citing those two passages as being scripturally oriented. In other words, they come fully from the word of God. But the second half of the prayer gives two examples of that doctrine of amplification, where in Catholic tradition, Mary actually becomes mediatrix, or mediator of salvation, or intercessor for our prayers, and theotokos, which is Mary seen as the mother of God. So she becomes in the second half of the prayer, mediatrix and theotokos. Now, let's examine those just for a moment. The prayer goes something like this. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. That's the second half of the prayer. The first half of the prayer is scripturally based. The second half of the prayer is the doctrine of amplification. And in that particular second half of the prayer, we are told that Mary is now our intercessor, mediatrix. That is, she is the one who is to intercede in our behalf before the throne of grace. And she is called there theotokos, which means the mother of God. Neither of these doctrines have any sure scriptural roots. These are simply doctrines that have been amplified in Catholic tradition to form what they call dogmas and, dogma, uh, dogmas and doctrines that end up being on equal footing with scripture. Are you following me? This is where the church, the Catholic church, has taken this. Now, let's see if we can look at some examples of major amplifications that the Catholic Church uh, has done over the, over the centuries. The first one I want to look at is Mary as the second Eve. This is critical. Mary as the second Eve. Like the earliest of all the books in the New Testament, the book of Galatians tells us in chapter 4 and verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under law. That phrase, born of a woman, along with what it says in Romans 5 and verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. 
And add to that 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, where it says, So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the man in heaven, the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Now what the Romans and Corinthians and Galatians are trying to teach us is that there are two races. It's not white race and black race. It is the human race and the divine race. The head of the human race is our father, Adam. We go all the way back to Adam. You and I, as Romans tells us, we are in the loins of Adam. So Adam's nature is carried on to every single one of us. I like to say, if you, uh, when you're taking a shower the next time, see if you have a belly button. If you do, you are in the loins of Adam. In other words, there is a human race, and there is a federal head of that human race, and his name is Adam. What Romans continues to tell us is that there's another race, a race from heaven. And the federal head of that race is the second Adam. The first Adam led to death. The second Adam, which is Christ, leads to salvation. The two federal heads are spelled out for us in the book of Romans, especially in uh, chapter 5. Well, now here's what happened. In the second and the third centuries, the church began to draw parallels between Eve and Mary. In fact, it became dominant among theologians to look at Adam and the second Adam alongside of Eve and Mary. And so the doctrines began to emerge, the typology of speaking of a first Adam and a second Adam, it was a short jump for the church, a short leap for them to look at the first Eve and the last Eve. Mary became that last Eve. Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyons in the second century, that's not too far removed from the writing of scripture, drew parallels between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane, between the first Adam and the second Adam, between the temptation of Eve and the temptation of Mary, between Eve's disobedience and Mary's obedience. Irenaeus, one of the great theologians of that second century, was beginning already to form traditions about connecting the two, connecting Mary and Eve together. Once this was introduced, the dialectic between Eve and Mary took a form all by itself. From that point on, things began to shoot in all sorts of different directions. When you look at the Latin Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible. In the Latin Vulgate, Eve's name spelled backwards is, or Eve's name renders Eva, and when spelled backwards, it becomes Ave. And from that minor point, from that very tiny coincidental point, point a mystical Mariology began to form. Well, Mary must be the second Eve. If Jesus is the second Adam, then Mary must be the second Eve. 
And so the contrast begins to form. On the one hand, there's Eve, the disobedient virgin, the emotional, volatile, irrational, erotic. Eve is contrasted to Mary, the obedient virgin, the submitted and faithful one who undoes and destroys the virginal disobedience of Eve. So you see the parallels now are beginning to be set. Adam, second Adam. Eve, second Eve. Disobedience, rebellion, life and obedience. And the parallels and the connection between what Jesus is and what Mary is begin to have cement between them. Catholic teaching on Mary as the second Eve is going to lead us somewhere, somewhere where we don't want to go. Catholic teaching on Mary as the second Eve leads to a salvation plan that depends upon man's full cooperation. Uh, we kind of uh, have that in Protestant circles as well. Arminianism teaches the same thing, that we must have cooperation for the salvation plan to take effect. Uh, in the Catholic catechism, I'm quoting now, so that no one thinks that I'm interpreting what Catholics actually believe. Uh, and I've cited these references for you. Let me read a few to you. What the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ. And what it teaches about Mary illumines, in turn, its faith in Christ. You catching that? Catholics are teaching us that what you believe about Mary is what's going to illuminate your understanding of faith in Christ. Mary, they believe, was predestined. God, I'm reading again, God sent forth his son, but to prepare a body for him, he wanted the free cooperation of a creature. The Father of mercies willed that the incarnation should be preceded by assent on the part of the predestined mother. So that just as a woman had a share in the coming of death, so also should a woman contribute to the coming of life. These doctrines become even more intense when we look at paragraph 489 in their catechism. At the very beginning, there was Eve. Despite her disobedience, she receives the promise of a posterity that will be victorious over the evil one, as well as the promise that she will be the mother of all the living. By virtue of this promise, Sarah conceives a son in spite of her old age. Against all human expectation, God chooses those who were considered powerless and weak to show forth his faithfulness to his promises. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, Deborah, Ruth, Judith, and Esther. Judith, by the way, is an apocryphal book that the Catholics embrace as equal with Scripture. And many other women. Mary stands out among the poor and humble of the Lord who confidently hope for and receive salvation from him. After a long period of waiting, the times are fulfilled in her, the exalted daughter of Zion, now watch this. And the new plan of salvation is established. Or 
in the Catholic Catechism, the Virgin Mary cooperated through free faith and obedience in human salvation. She uttered her yes in the name of all human nature. By her obedience, she became the new Eve, mother of the living. Or by pronouncing her fiat at the Annunciation and giving her consent to the Incarnation, Mary was already collaborating with the whole work her son was to accomplish. She is mother wherever he is savior and head of the mystical body. Or we believe that the holy mother of God, the new Eve, mother of the church, continues in heaven to exercise her maternal role on behalf of the members of Christ. That's Pope Paul VI. You see, what we have here is Catholic teaching on Mary's role in the incarnation will ultimately lead to an unbiblical role for her as our co-redeemer. And we'll deal with that a little bit later in the series. But keep that in the back of your mind. When we make Mary the second Eve, it's a very short leap to make her co-redeemer. And I'll show you how the church has connected that over the years. The biblical teaching on salvation is that it is all of grace. It is all of mercy. It is undeserved favor. And it is dependent only upon the sovereign will and purpose of God. That's what the scriptures teach. He does not need any man or woman's cooperation to execute what he ordained before the foundation of the earth. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest... We were by nature objects of wrath. That means destined to hell by nature. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. To introduce any kind of other salvation a salvation that requires man's cooperation, is to introduce something that the scriptures simply do not support. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 says, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. The power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Watch this now not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So I raise a question. If God purposed his grace and his plan of salvation, why are we now saying that Mary had to cooperate to effect that redemption? We are by nature fallen. 
We are by nature objects of wrath. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? You who are sitting here are African Americans. You who are sitting here who are white. Can you change the color of your skin which you were born with by nature? If you're white, you're going to remain white. If you're black, you're going to remain black. This is what he's saying in Jeremiah. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard its spots? Can you paint stripes on a leopard and make it a tiger? Can you put antlers on it and make it a deer? It is by nature a leopard. And so Jeremiah follows that with this. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, by nature... We are in the loins of Adam, and by nature, that means we are born dead. Our nature is death. We cannot respond. We don't have the ability to cooperate. The Holy Spirit must change the human heart and make us into something, miraculously regenerate us and change our hearts because we are accustomed to doing evil. This is precisely the way in which God called Mary. He instilled within her the will to obey. He gave her the faith to believe. Now that's going to come into play a little bit later when we talk about the Immaculate Conception. I don't know how many of you realize, but the church, the Catholic Church, teaches that Mary was conceived sinless. And that Mary remained in the rest of her life sinless. That she was perfect. She had perfect obedience, they say, in, the, in sharp contrast to Eve, who was disobedient. Well, now that's Mary as the second Eve. Catholics also teach that Mary is the mother of God. Now, again, let's look at the doctrine of amplification. Luke chapter 1, verse 42. It says, in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you, this is Elizabeth talking now, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. Now watch this, verse 43 of Luke 1. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That phrase, mother of my Lord, became the one scripture, the one foundation for church's tradition and what they consider to be reasonable to take the leap from mother of my Lord to mother of God. Catholic teaching is what is referred to as theotokos. The doctrine of theotokos is a critical divisive point between Protestants and Catholics. Mary's divine motherhood, the Catholic Catechism says, Mary is truly mother of God since she is the mother of the eternal Son of God made man who is God himself. Now, it's pretty hard to disagree with that. She did give birth to God himself in human flesh. She was the vehicle, the conduit. Uh, she was the incubator that brought forth Jesus, the incarnate word of God. Now, in paragraph 495 of their catechism, 
It says, called in the Gospels, the mother of Jesus, Mary is acclaimed by Elizabeth. That's the verse we just read. At the prompting of the Spirit, and even before the birth of her son, as the mother of my Lord. In fact, the one whom she conceived as man by the Holy Spirit, who truly became her son according to the flesh, was none other than the Father's eternal Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Hence, the church confesses that Mary is truly Mother of God, Theotokos. Now, you might look at that and say, well, you know, that's not so bad. I mean, Jesus was God, is God, and she did give birth to him in human form. But you're going to see later where they took this. You're going to see later why the dogma of Theotokos has divided evangelicals from Catholics. There's a background behind Theotokos. Sadly, this doctrine is actually one where Catholics and evangelicals could possibly agree if they would simply look at the historical facts and the backdrop of this doctrine. Is Mary the mother of God? Or is she merely the earthly mother of Jesus, the man? In the third and the fourth centuries, the greater doctrine that threatened the church was the heresy that taught that Jesus was not fully human. You're in the third and the fourth centuries. Some of it was actually birthed in the second century. The doctrine of Gnosticism. Gnosticism says that Jesus was not really a man because nothing good could ever dwell in the flesh. And so Gnostics reasoned that he only appeared to be human, that he was not really flesh and blood. Well, that great debate raged around his birth, how he was born, uh, whether or not there can be a mystical union between Jesus as God and Jesus as man. So in the 5th century, Nestorius, who was the patriarch of Constantinople, he said, you know what, this is offensive for us to call her mother of God. We need to change Theotokos to Christokos, or mother of Christ. In the context of this discussion, in the 3rd and the 4th centuries, in the context of all of that, heresy is flowing abundantly. Heresy that denied that Jesus was fully human served as a backdrop, if you will, for the discussion concerning who Mary was and exactly who it was she gave birth to. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 39, we have, from verses 39 to 42, we have that one phrase, that one single phrase that Elizabeth murmured when she referred to Mary as the mother of my Lord. So the short leap was taken. And in 431, at the Council of Ephesus, they took the phrase, mother of my Lord, that was spoken by Elizabeth, and they began to refer to Mary as Theotokos, or mother of God, or the one who gave birth to God. That's the literal translation of Theotokos the one who gave birth to God. Right after that council met, after they affirmed their belief that Mary was the mother of God, they would not accept the term 
Christokos, or Mother of Christ, right after that, right after that council, Pope Sixtus III built one of the most important shrines in the West to Mary, the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, with its celebrated mosaic as Mary the Theotokos, or the one who gave birth to God. It was a few centuries later that John of Damascus would summarize the case for using the term Theotokos. This is what he said. This name embraces the whole mystery of the divine dispensation. For if she who bore him is the Theotokos, assuredly he who was born of her is God and likewise man. The name in truth signifies the one subsistence and the two natures and the two modes of generation of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this came from one phrase that Elizabeth mentioned when she referred to Mary as carrying the mother, or as, as referring to her as the mother of my Lord. The church then leaped and took off, and the theologians came out of the woodwork. Theotokos specifically excludes the understanding of Mary as mother of God in the eternal sense. They will recognize that. Catholics and evangelicals both believe that God is the cause of all. He does not have an origin. He does not have a source. And therefore, he is without a mother. Catholics and evangelicals will recognize that. This stands in sharp contrast, again, to the backdrop of the 4th and the 3rd and the 2nd centuries. This is in sharp contrast to the Greco-Roman world where they had tons of deities. Uh, they had tons of gods and a number of divine female figures appear as the mothers of these deities. All Christians, evangelicals and Catholics, also believe God the Son is begotten of God the Father from all eternity, but is born in time of Mary. You recited the Apostles' Creed this morning. You said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and did you notice what comes next? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's nothing said about the intervening 33 years. It simply says that Jesus was born of a virgin and then went to a cross. Literally suffered death under Pontius Pilate. Now why did the Apostles' Creed writers feel that that was necessary? Because of the doctrine of Gnosticism that denied that Jesus was fully human. And so in the Apostles' Creed, when you read, read that, you read it in the backdrop of heresy, of teaching that denied that Jesus was fully human. Well, from Gnosticism emerged other doctrines that said, well, he wasn't fully God either. So the Apostles' Creed 
uh, embraced in early years by the church, takes us from the virgin birth to the suffering of Christ on the cross, and they do so in order to fully demonstrate being born of the virgin means he's fully God. Suffering under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, means that he is fully man. And all Christians believe that. Theotokos thus refers to the incarnation. When the second person of the Holy Trinity took human nature in addition to his pre-existing divine nature. That's what we believe. Now, Catholics maintain that Mary, as the second Eve, made all of this possible through her obedience and her cooperation. Evangelicals reject that in light of the fact that we see Mary as having been elected or chosen by God's grace and God's mercy in the very same way that Abraham was chosen as the father of Israel. Abraham, if you will recall, was a moon worshiper. He was following after pagan gods. It was God who elected him. It was God who chose him. It was God who invaded his life and changed him from Abram, which means father of one, to Avrahim, which means the father of many. It wasn't Abraham who was seeking God. It was God who was seeking Abraham. In the very same way, that is where Mary is. Now, we certainly cannot call her a heathen, not in the sense that Abraham was, but in the sense of being elected and chosen. She was elected. She was chosen. And that makes her special. And that's what Catholics and Protestants need to, what Catholics seem to understand, that she is special. But we Protestants, we tend to water down that special quality of who she was and who she is. The elected one. Little girls uh, in Jewish culture in that day, for centuries before as well, prayed that they might be the one who births the Messiah. Mary was probably no more than 13 or 14 years of age when she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Every young girl, every religious uh, and, 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 and practicing Jewish little girl prayed that they would be the ones who would, they, that they would be the one who would uh, birth the coming of Messiah. So it was special. It was unique. He did not single any other woman out except her. He did so for his own purposes. Even in her celebrated song that she sang to Elizabeth, what does Mary confess? Watch this closely, Luke 1:46. It says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my, what's that last word? Savior. My Savior. I would say to my Catholic brethren, if you're going to take Elizabeth's words, where she says, my Lord, and amplify it into the doctrine of Theotokos, then you also have to take these words, 
where she says, God, my Savior, and amplify that to mean that she indeed was a sinner. She indeed, like every other human being that has ever lived, was in the loins of Adam. But it was not on the basis of her goodness, or as the Catholics like to maintain, her exemption from original sin, the Immaculate Conception, we'll discuss that later, that she was chosen. But the doctrine of Theotokos needs to be clearly seen against the backdrop of the history in which it was framed. Catholics understand that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. On that we agree. Thus they call Mary Theotokos in order to affirm the fullness of God's incarnation. And as I said at the council in 431, all of this was embraced as they changed the word Theotokos to mean the one who gives birth to God. So you see, the doctrine of Theotokos lies more in what it says about Jesus than any declaration about Mary. What I mean by that is that the councils were not so much interested in how they were defining Mary as much as they were interested in defending the full humanity and full deity of Jesus. And so in order to do that, they had to deal with the woman who birthed Jesus. There are other Catholic doctrines that have been open for discussion with both Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican churches. And one thing that they agree on, the two doctrines that we all agree on, is the fact of the virgin birth and the identity of Jesus. All Christians embrace the virgin birth. All Christians believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. But here is where we disagree. We disagree in that Catholics teach Mary had a sinless nature. The Immaculate Conception. That Mary continued to be a virgin for the rest of her life. That she bore no other children. And then because she was born sinless, because she lived her life in a perfection that no other man has ever lived, like unto Enoch and like unto Elijah, who walked with God and were taken into heaven, body and soul, the Catholics teach that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. Her sinless nature, they say, demanded it. If it was good enough for Enoch, if it was good enough for Elijah, then it has to be good enough for the mother of God, as they say. Now, that's where tradition and that's where what they consider to be reasonable conflicts with Scripture. Mary calls Jesus my Savior. That means she needed to be saved from something. Mary had four children that were boys and at least two girls that we know of. We know the names of those brothers are James and Joseph and Simon, and Judas. So he had at least four brothers, and it refers to her, to his sisters, which means there were at least two girls. So all in all, Mary had seven children that we know of, including Jesus. But the doctrine of the ever-virgin must be intact 
for the Immaculate Conception to remain intact? How could someone who is sinless give birth to someone who is sinful? And so what Catholics will do with the uh, doctrine of the ever-Virgin is they will simply say that Mary remained a virgin all of her life and that these people mentioned in the Gospels as his brothers and sisters were not really his brothers and sisters. They were children born of Joseph who was a widow, widower and he had already died. So she was raising, they say, his stepchildren, her stepchildren. Well, that's just not taught in Scripture. And there again, that's where tradition informs Scripture rather than the other way around. Well, these are parts of Mariology that every Bible-believing Christian should reject. Now, we'll continue this study as we look further at who this person is and what this person did because the next logical step and this is where it really gets dangerous. The next logical step, if Mary was conceived without sin, if Mary remains sinless for her entire life, if Mary is the second Eve, if Mary is the mother of God, Theotokos, then you're going to be very surprised at what the Catholics do with Genesis 3.15, where God turns to Satan and he makes this prophecy. The seed of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Historically, the church has always believed that Jesus is the seed of the woman. The next time we're together, I'm going to show you and trace for you the history of how the Catholic church came to believe that Mary is the seed of the woman who crushes Satan's head. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Father, bless and encourage us in this time of worship together. Lord, we're not looking to divide, we're looking to inform. And hopefully, Father, to at least as Christians, as evangelical believers, to return to our roots in Scripture, to see the finality of the Word, and to recognize what man can do with just a verse or just a word or just a phrase to divide. And so, Lord, we pray that as we continue to examine this precious woman's life, as we look at the birth narrative itself, as we hear and read and envision what it must have been like for her, that you would give us insight into those great sacred and holy days when you became a man. Thank you for this great church. I pray that this has been informative, that it's been a blessing. May the grace of God the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the very presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit abide with each of you now until Christ comes again and forevermore.